Recovery Elevator, episode 259. You aren't your drinking. You aren't your behavior. Those things can be left behind. And then you can become come out the other side of a, a new person, a raw person, who does have the ability to get back to the person you're meant to be. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Andrew. He's 47 years old. He's from Sydney, Australia. He took his last drink on February 16th, 2019. In his interview, he talks about how he got away with it until he didn't. It's a fantastic interview. You guys are going to love it. Recently, someone said to me, Hey, Paul. You sound a little different in the last few episodes. You're speaking slower. It's as if the intonation or the cadence of your voice has changed. I laughed, and I said, correct. And after the interview with Andrew, I'll discuss why. This past Saturday, we had our first of two Australia meetups, which took place in Sydney at Bondi Beach. We had 13 rock stars in attendance. Mark, who I interviewed on episode 230, even flew over from Perth. And want to say thank you to everyone who attended. And check this out. This is cool. We had a two-hour lunch at a cafe that was right on the beach. We then did a one-hour walk along the coast to Bronte Beach. Right when we arrived, we were approached by Remedy Kombucha, who offered us free kombucha. I was like, you have no idea just how much this group loves kombucha. I then tell them about Recovery Elevator, the meetup, and then they give us four free cases of kombucha. And we continue the meetup on the grass under a large tree still on the beach. Thank you, Petri, from Cafe RE Blue, hello forever, for your help getting this event set up. And before we get any further, let's hear from BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? I personally will be speaking with someone about learning how to set firmer boundaries and working on being less of a people pleaser. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counselor network, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, and join the over 700,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Special offer for Recovery Elevator listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. There are two things I'd like to cover with you today. Number one, how it's the simple things in life that matter the most and often deliver the highest levels of happiness. And number two, watch out for addiction whack-a-mole or transfer addiction, or when we quit drinking and then we suddenly find ourselves trading pints of beer to pints of Ben and Jerry's. Okay, let's get started. As some of you already know, I'm podcasting on the road. I was in Mexico for a month and now I'm in Australia then New Zealand for Christmas and New Year's, then to volunteer at Hope Rehab in Thailand again, 
before our Recovery Elevator Asia Adventure Sober travel trip starts late January. If you've ever seen an online dating profile or asked someone what they like to do, it's rare when you don't hear travel mentioned. And when we travel, we start searching for what to do in these locations. Well, because, as Aerosmith would say, I don't want to miss a thing. Not quite with the same context of fear of missing out or FOMO, but still applicable, and I'm no different. I've done the big hitters while in Australia, the Sydney Opera House, zoos, animal sanctuaries, whale watching, botanical gardens, a honey farm, not a vineyard. I've seen famous beaches, done guided walks, drives, bicycle tours, fed parrots. All of them, which TripAdvisor can back me up on, are great. I'd recommend them to anyone, and maybe some of you have even seen or liked some of these posts or experiences on Instagram. But let me share with you what part of Australia I've enjoyed the most. I've made it a point to see as many sunrises as possible while on the Gold Coast. After the sunrise this morning, I decided to Google AA meetings on the Gold Coast and found one that started at 6 a.m. just a couple miles away. I show up and take a seat. Right before the meeting starts, this guy leans over to me and says, Hey mate, how do you spell silk? I go, silk, S-I-L-K. He nods and then says, what do cows drink? I go, milk. He goes, no mate, water, water mate, come on mate. And I start laughing and I go, you got me good. So the meeting starts and then it finishes. And I'm headed towards my rental car back to my Airbnb when the same guy introduces himself to me as Barry and says, Hey, mate, want to go to the beach and feed seagulls with me? My mind immediately responds saying, I've got to record a podcast episode. My staff is already halfway through the workday in America and I need to get moving. He sees me formulating excuses in my mind and goes, Come on, mate. You'll be back by nine. I'm sorry if this accent isn't working out, but I'm going to try my best with it. I say, sure. Where are you parked? He then points to a motorcycle and says, why can't my motorcycle stand up on two wheels? Because it's too tired, mate. All right. Okay, Barry, you got me good again. You got a helmet for me? He says, yeah, mate. And we're off. So midway through feeding seagulls at the beach, I look up at 47-year-old Barry, who hasn't touched a drink in 22 years, and I can see the life in pure light with a capital L in his eyes. I go, hey Barry, how often do you come to feed the seagulls? What's your morning routine? What's your secret? He goes, well, I go to a meeting some mornings, but I always come to feed the seagulls. I looked at him and said, every morning? Always? Barry then looks at me, then at the seagulls, and then the waves crashing nearby, and then says, come on, mate. I then looked at the waves. The seagulls, who were patiently waiting for me to empty the bag of bread, looked up at the blue sky and said, holy shit. And as the 19th century German philosopher Nietzsche said in a rare moment of stillness, how little suffices for happiness. At that moment, I knew that however impressive all the other sites, parks, zoos, halls, theaters, venues, museums, 
churches, cathedrals that I had visited were, this delivered the most. And it consisted of breadcrumbs, seagulls, and the ocean. Barry was one of the best teachers I've encountered to show me this. Thank you, Barry. And you can see a picture of me and Barry on the Recovery Elevator Instagram page if you'd like. When we search for things to do, places to explore, sites to see, feeding seagulls isn't at the top, or even on the list at all. I'll be honest, that morning I was feeling lonely. I was feeling far away from home. I was missing my dog, Ben. I don't know when I'm going to see my dog, Ben, again. I don't even know when I'm going to return home. And when we think of ways to feel better, once alcohol is no longer in our lives, we often think of things like going for a run, yoga, meditation, massage, schedule with a counselor, attend an AA or a smart meeting, phone a friend, starting a new diet routine or a mindset, and about a hundred other things that are all significantly better than drinking, but feeding seagulls, which is usually never even considered and is so simple and so powerful, is never on the list. One more thing about Barry. He always said the word cowabunga, like in every other sentence. I asked if this was something that Australians said often. He said, no, mate, just mate. So next time you're going toe-to-toe with a craving or an emotional charge, think about feeding the seagulls, the pigeons, the squirrels, perhaps teaching your dog a new trick. Think less and be more. Okay, now on to the second topic of the episode. It's common and even normal to replace alcohol with other substances or behaviors when we quit drinking. As Sarah Hippola says in her book Blackout, It's as if we are constantly downgrading addictions. I kept having to tick over dominoes on this journey, but they were smaller and easier to push over. I won't go into the list now, but there were several, and I'm still working on it. This is normal, and be kind with yourself. However, there is one I want you to watch out for. This is a sneaky one, maybe even sneakier than alcohol, if that's even possible. I feel this will become the greatest addiction of all time, one that I'm not even 100% certain humans will survive. I'm sorry, I'm just speaking my mind. This one is honey. I'm just kidding, but for me, I have to be careful with that one. This would be technology, and I'm more specifically referencing smartphones. South Korea was the first country to create online gaming and technology rehabs and detox facilities and many more countries followed suit, and soon all countries will have them. And there are tech coaches that are paid well to help people cut ties with their phones, to detach from technology. I know, crazy world. But did I mention sneaky? For many, the tech claws already have found their purchase. According to a study, 88% of Americans check their social media accounts, emails, or an app that isn't their alarm in the first five minutes after waking up every single day. Now let me share a quick story with you. I was boarding my flight from Sydney to the Gold Coast this past Saturday. After scanning my board pass, I walked down the jetway where there was a line outside of the airplane. I stop. I feel a slight bump on my left tricep. I turn and see a guy watching a cricket match on his phone. He doesn't even notice he bumped into me. I turn, take a step forward, and then another bump. I slightly turn my head to look, and same thing, same guy, same result. 
His phone hits my left tricep, but this time he had the app Snapchat open. I decide to close the distance even further with the person in front of me, and then tap. I turn, same guy, same thing's happening, but this time it's with the Instagram, and he has no clue what he's doing. I decide to wait before saying something. There were four more taps, seven in total, with five different apps in a matter of two to three minutes. After the seventh, I turn and say, dude. He looked up and I said, pay attention. Now I'd like to paint a picture that I'm performing a walking meditation down the jet bridge, breathing mindfully, but I'm listening to an audiobook, Homo Deus by Juval Harari through my Bose headphones that are connected via Bluetooth to my smartphone. So I'm also connected to my technology, just perhaps not as far down or as connected as he has down that scale. So after our awkward moment on the jet bridge, I find my seat. And guess who is supposed to sit right next to me? Yep, the same guy. Fortunately, there was a sweet gal, probably in her late 70s, who sat in the wrong seat next to me. And this guy sat in her seat one row up. Me and Beth do some small chat, and I say, I'm going to listen to my audiobook, and I put on my headphones. When we start our descent into the Gold Coast, Beth taps me on the shoulder. I remove my headphones, and then she says, look, there's the Gold Coast. I say, wow, gorgeous, and then I put on my headphones. And through the seat crack in front of me, I can see the guy who tapped my left tricep seven times with his phone. He's clacking, swiping up opening apps, closing apps, like his battery is at 1%, but this can't be possible since it's connected to an external power dock. I'm not kidding on this one. So I take my headphones off and I say to Beth who is sitting next to me, I say, what are you going to be doing on the Gold Coast? I learned she'll be visiting her older brother for Christmas and that her husband rented a car and drove through the Colorado Rockies in 1982, the year I was born, and she told me all about the trip. We chatted until we both departed the plane. When we landed and got cell service, I looked between the seats and saw this guy in a fury in under 90 seconds. Check every social app ever invented, it seems. Send a snap, an email, read a couple Facebook posts, comment, and more. It reminded me of the intensity of my drinking to alcohol before I quit. And look, I've been there. I have a smartphone. I've also found comfort in my smartphone, especially when I'm finding myself this far away from home. But I'm simply covering this so we can all be aware. And awareness is our most powerful ally on this journey. Technology is a fabulous invention when we start leveraging it to connect more. I've made it a point to recently start FaceTiming. How cool is FaceTime? Okay, enough out of me. And before we hear from Andrew, let's hear from Cafe RE. The three most important lessons I've learned while quitting drinking are, we can't do this alone, we need accountability, and a supportive community is key. In the private unsearchable Facebook groups Cafe RE, you're going to get all three and much more. What does private mean? Well, these groups are unsearchable on Facebook. Who's in the group and what is said can only be seen by members. You get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to ditch the booze. These groups are capped at under 350 members to ensure a quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking doesn't have to suck. In fact, it can be a lot of fun. For $19 a month, 
You too can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online meetups, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and much more. Oh yeah, you'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Andrew, how are you? I'm great. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. And listeners, I even dropped a preview of who the interview is on this podcast in last episode. I met Andrew when I showed up to the Bondi Beach Pavilion to attend an AA meeting. I'm walking up there and I don't know which room it's located in. And I see two guys with coffee cups. Got a good idea. It's the target market, right crowd. And I say, hey, where's the, uh, where's the AA meeting? And I meet Andrew. And such a nice guy. So hey, I just want to say thank you for the warm welcome. Um, you even showed me where to get coffee. And then you went into the meeting and you showed up 45 seconds later. It's like, hey, I haven't seen you. Just want to make sure you haven't gotten lost. So thank you very much for the warm welcome, Andrew. It's great to have you on the podcast. Oh, thanks, Paul. That's how, that's how it works, doesn't it? Just looking after each other. Absolutely. And I'm excited to share your story with the audience. I heard, uh, I heard Andrew share at the meeting. Uh, Andrew attended our recovery elevator meetup at the same Bondi Beach uh, Pavilion Cafe. And I said, I got to get this guy on there. He's dropping too many value bombs. So I'm excited to share your story. And Andrew, let's just get right into this. When was your last drink? My last drink uh, was the 16th of February, the beginning of this year, 2019. Nice. Great job. And and uh, give listeners a little background about yourself, Andrew, where you're from, what you do for a living, your age. Do you have a family? And, and most importantly, what do you like to do for fun? Okay. Uh, look, I'm 47 years old. I, I grew up in Canberra, in, uh, which is about three hours drive south of Sydney. It's actually the capital city of Australia. But I moved to Sydney about 25 years ago. And I, I, I was married, uh, divorced, divorced when I was 30 years old and married and uh, alcohol was a big part of why I got married and alcohol was certainly a bigger part, even bigger part of why I got divorced and been through a, a range of relationships since then. And, uh, and the common theme underlying them all, you know, there were problems in every relationship because one, I was in them and two, I was alcoholic in them. And, um, but I mean, now, nowadays I enjoy a very simple life. I live right near the beach and, and I love nothing more than just going out to the water. I like going out in winter when it's cold, even in, in a few of the rough waves. And, and there's something about it that just really makes you feel at ease and peace with, with, your, with the world when, when you're out there. You know, it's, it makes you really feel the significance and the insignificance of your existence. Andrew, before we dive deeper into your story, I want to ask you, you mentioned, you know, before you quit drinking, you said, I got to do something different. I'm going to jump in this water every single day. And in the wintertime, I imagine it's pretty chilly. What, what did that look like for you to just get in the water, get the blood going? Um, and how did that help you boost forward without alcohol? Uh, I think I'd become so stuck in a rut I, I was at a loss. I didn't know how to quit drinking. I knew that that was most likely. I still couldn't ex admit that that was the problem. I still, I just thought it most likely was the problem. But I also had diagnosis of mental illness, of mania, bipolar. And, and I just thought, uh, this year, I'm going to go swimming in winter. I saw other people doing it. Why can't I? And I thought, I don't do anything that's re even remotely uncomfortable for me. So I thought, I'm going to go in winter just as the sun's rising each day out into the ocean. I'm not going to swim. I'm not training for the Olympics. I'm not swimming laps of a pool. I'm just going into the water. I'm just getting the mental strength to go against my instincts of going out in the cold and forcing myself to go in that cold water. And I don't know what it did, it, but I did it every day for the first winter. And it's, it's, this year was the third winter. Now I kept drinking through that first year. 
of going in winter swimming. But but something about it, gave, I just knew I had to do something to try and get some kind of resilience back into my mental state. I was just, I was weak. I, I could see that I didn't, I didn't have the courage to live my life or to confront any of the challenges that I faced on a daily basis, especially the drinking. I didn't have any desire to really confront anything, and I thought that maybe will kickstart something. I don't know. I was reaching out out for anything. Well, earlier you said you didn't know how you're going to quit drinking, but you had to do something, and you recognized that you needed to build resilience. You wanted to get outside of your comfort zone, and you said you were swimming at dawn before the sun came up in the winter every morning. Is that what you heard? I was, yes. Wow. Yeah. And at that time, you said you didn't quite realize that alcohol was the problem. That was a couple of years ago, you said? I knew it was a big problem in my life, but I just could not bear the thought of living without it. I didn't know how to live without it. I didn't think it was possible to live without it. Once you'd got to this, how far down the track I'd gone, I thought I was too far gone. I really did. And so I just thought it was pointless trying to even address it, that it had become such a big, complex, multifaceted problem that it was too big to address. And, and so I just thought I'll just ignore it. Yeah, and Andrew, I want to go back to the beginning, but I know a lot of listeners, their heads just nodded, yep, when you said, I didn't know how to imagine a life without it. I know that resonated. So we're actually going to get up to speed to that moment. But let's go back even further. Talk to us about when your drinking first became problematic, when you first realized, wait a second, maybe alcohol isn't serving me in my life. <laughs> I, I started laughing because I knew from the very first moments I drank. And I was about 15 and I knew and I got drunk. The very first time I drank, I got quite tipsy to drunk and I became a, a very big nuisance and uncontrollable for the people. My, I was with a, group, a bunch of mates. We we're all about the same age, the same year at school, and one of them had had uh, stolen all these um, little bottles of vodka and gin and so forth from a mini bar at a hotel where his mum was attending a conference. And so he had this stack of these little fifty mil bottles of uh, of spirits, and we were we just knocking them back like they were water. And uh, and I behaved so out of control that night that we gate crashed somebody else's party, an old girls' party, caused a scene with parents, uh, and that and it was all my driving. I realised from the very beginning that when I drank, I didn't behave quite the same as everybody else, and it was and I was a I became a nuisance, and that was from the very beginning. I just thought that was a behavioural problem because I was a little bit highly strung and I was I was athletic and I was energetic at school and I thought oh that's just my personality with alcohol. I didn't think that alcohol and I didn't go together. I just assumed that my behaviour is just different to everybody else's normally. So the alcohol is just enhancing that. And uh, yeah, I was just so different when I drank to to those around me. Was there a moment when you thought the alcohol almost had a therapeutic effect? Like you said, you know, I'm a little different, but alcohol lets me blend in more because I know that's how I felt. I found that it calmed me down. I found that I was always wound up. I'd be rubbing my hands. As a teenager, I'd be walking around the house. I couldn't sit still. I'd be pacing back and forward. I'd be agitated and anxious. But I was generally happy. I was a happy, happy kid, but I was also on edge. So it wasn't. And as soon as I had that first sip, it's like it just flooded my body with this extraordinary sense of release of all that pent-up anxiety and tension, and I didn't feel that anymore. Of course, I thought that if I have one drink and I feel a lot better, maybe if I have two or three, I'll feel even better. And of course, six, eight, ten, twelve beers later, when as a young, when I was very young, and uh, and that anxiety and that that 
that would kick that would then combine with the alcohol and create some entire new beast a new version of me that was really hard to contain and hard to control for anybody else i mean i didn't even care about trying to control my behavior i just went with it and it was very destructive from a, from the beginning Sure. So at age 15, from the very first time you realized, okay, I'm not drinking like others. And imagine you rolled through your teens and your twenties. When did you first recognize that? Look, this, uh, this, this is causing more damage than good. Oh, look, it was even earlier by, by age 19, I'd had four drink driving charges and I was always just driving. As soon as I got drunk, I just, I got in my car and just drove. Even if I wasn't, didn't have anywhere to go, I would just start driving for no particular reason. And I eventually, when I was 19, I almost ran over a police officer. In Australia, they have random breath testing stations, which is where the police will block off one lane of traffic and just pull people over into that lane to test them for alcohol yeah. randomly. And, uh, and I went through that lane of traffic without slowing down or stopping and almost ran over the police that were standing in the lane waiting for me to stop. And I wasn't speeding. I was going very slow. But, uh, and they jumped out of the way of the car and I went through, kept going straight up the road and went down into a ditch on the other side of the road and hit some bushes and got arrested and spent five days in jail at the age of 19. And the, the madness of my alcohol is this is this is how mad I was. I actually saw it as a positive because I thought I was working too hard at work, which is why I was stressed and had to drink so much. And so that five days in jail gave me a little bit of a holiday and I felt like it was a stress reliever. I didn't even think that it was a problem. Uh, okay. So from age 19, you're saying I'm stressed. I work too much. Um, and the signs is your fourth, uh, drunken or drinking and driving charge. How did you keep the lid on for so long? It sounds like you quit drinking at age 46 <laughs> to 47. We've got another 26 or 27 years. You or even, did you keep the lid on? I, I didn't, I really didn't. I, I managed to, I managed to work really hard in every job that I had and I, and I would, and I would do well professionally for a while. And I would achieve results. Uh, I worked in the restaurant business and I worked at the high end of restaurants in Australia. And I achieved a, a amazing results for the businesses that I ran. And I was a restaurant manager from a very young age. From 25, I was running a restaurant called Key, which during my time there, I was there for five years as the manager. And uh, during that time, we became highly ranked on a global scale and uh, on a global um, scorecard. And I was constantly getting warnings. I was constantly getting, the owner would fine me. He'd fine me $1,000 once for bad behavior when I was drunk. And I was constantly, you know, I was drink driving the work van. Um, you know, I saw some nice girls when I was out on a night out and I went to work and picked up the work van and drank, drove it to pick them up and take them back to the restaurant for an after party. And I did all this sort of stuff and I still didn't lose my job because we were making record profits and we were winning amazing critical acclaim so i was kind of allowed to get away with an enormously extraordinarily bad behavior and eventually i couldn't you know i had got away with it until suddenly i didn't and then i was all shocked and appalled how can you fire me look what i've done i i promised to change my ways all the time the owner would meet with me and confront me with some of the things that he'd heard and he'd hear rumors of my behavior and out and about in the streets uh, when I wasn't working and uh, and, he, and, I'd, and he'd asked me if I want if I wanted to hear what he'd heard and I said no I know don't worry about telling me the details and he said what am I meant to make of all these stories I hear about you then I said oh, I just assume they're probably true and he'd say well they're, they're terrible so oh, I don't know well what can I say I'm still at work still turn up to work and I thought because I still perform my job that I should be allowed to get away with my behavior and I, I honestly thought that if I could just keep that going, I was going to be okay for the rest of my life. It was going to be hard. I was going to have a really hard life of trying to 
juggle and, and balance the, the lies of what I've been doing and how I was living and try and balance that with still trying to perform to some degree, you know, getting basically a scorecard of, of results of how well I did in a work sense. Meanwhile, my, my life personally was a disaster. Relationships are, I mean, it should have been a disaster at work, but I had an owner who just let me keep getting away with things because of the, the money kept rolling in. I want to dive a little deeper into something you just said that, again, I know listeners, they were nodding their head up and down. And some of them, if they haven't yet, there's a yet scale in this podcast, they will. Well, there's a good chance or a chance they will in the future. That's what you said was, I got away with it until I didn't. Now, once you recognize that you were no longer getting away with things, was there almost this extra push or something internally that said, look, I need to explore my relationship with alcohol. Now, previously in the interview, you talked about you were diagnosed bipolar. And then I heard in the, in the share that you said that you, that is no longer on the forefront of your, of your life right now. So you started exploring things that needed a change, right? Well, that's when I first started to, I was, I was around 29 years of age. And that, that's when I, I lost, I was 29, I might've been 30, but I lost that job. I finally lost that job. They'd had enough. It just was out. Of, I was out of control, and I finally lost that job. I pushed it too far, and that's when I decided I'd go to a psychiatrist for the first time, or a psychologist, and and explain. And I and I went through my history of all the things that I'd done and the behaviours I'd been involved in, and you know, spending crazy spending sprees. And you know, were you just, honest about just, the, the amount you drank? I wasn't. No. No, and <laughs> and I wasn't. Similar even, response I wasn't too. <laughs> even, I wasn't even completely honest with the stories. Uh, okay. um, you know, I, I toned down. I didn't want to go. To, I thought if I tell them the actual truth, I'll, they'll lock me up immediately. I honestly thought that. So I told the psychologist uh, a sort of toned down versions of everything that I'd done. I left out the really bad stuff. I thought we'll see what I. Well, I thought I'll see what he comes back with this. And he came back with a diagnosis. He referred me to another psychologist who he said was a specialist in the area of what I what he thought was wrong with me. And my referral said that I was, Andrew suffers from uh, bipolar mood disorder with psycho psychotic manic episodes. And so I took this, I took this referral home and I, my, and I was married at the time and my wife asked me how to go with the doctor and I read the referral and she was horrified. She said, this says that you're a psychotic maniac. And I was laughing and she said, what are you laughing about? What's so funny? I said, the funny part is I left out the really bad stuff. But then I really knew, and so he got—he put me on some. I went to see the new the new doctor. They put me on some medication uh, for bipolar, and and it kind of made me. It felt felt like I put cement in my head. It felt like I just the personality that I had just disappeared overnight, and suddenly. And I and I said to my parents over a period of about three months, I kind of just slowly took myself off those off that medication. I didn't tell the doctor. I didn't tell my wife. I didn't tell my parents. And eventually, somebody said to me. You're starting to appear a bit more like your old self again. Are you? Uh, you still on your medication? And I said, uh, No, I snuck off it. And I said to my mum and dad that year uh, after I admitted to everybody I'd gone off the medication. I said, Look, you know, I may not have much of a future or a life because of how I how I behave, but it's going to be at least my life. And I said, It might be a disaster. I don't know, but at least I'm going to be living my life and who I am. Because by that stage, I had accepted that this mad absolute madman who was out of control all the time and drinking all the time i accepted for a fact that that was who i was and i couldn't associate i couldn't see that i wasn't that my behavior my behavior and my personality were my identity i loved being drunk at that stage even with the consequences at that stage in my late 20s i loved being drunk i loved the unpredictability of it and 
the consequences were already bad, but I thought I can just keep trying to manage those. And I'm going to, um, you know, this is just how life is. This is just my life. You know, everyone's born with different lives. And I used to say some people are born in war-torn little areas in Africa. I was born in Australia. So, you know, I, 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 this is my life. You know, oh, I've got my own issues and yeah, my problems. Yeah, justification. But, we do that well. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and Andrew, so I, I definitely want to dive into the time you've got away from alcohol. So let's bump it up to late 30s or early 40s. I know there's a fantastic story revolving a, involving a Woolies, which is a local grocer. <laughs> let's talk about that. Uh, yeah, well, it was after, after a, uh, I, I had a long, a long uh, history of thinking that I was really well connected with people and I was funny and I'd entertained people and I had a great time when I went out. And, and, so, and I thought so, but it did everybody else. But the results were that the fact that I got banned from almost every pub and bar and club you can imagine around Sydney. I was at some stage or another. I've been banned from every uh, every alcohol serving premises around the city uh, over the last twenty odd years. And uh, some of those bans would be a month, some would be a week, some would be a year. But I've been banned from everywhere at some stage. And eventually, I, I was watching a football match around two years, two and a half years ago, and I was particularly drunk uh, on this one night. You know, and I blacked out and I couldn't remember really leaving the place where I was drinking. And I woke up the next day in bed, in my clothes, with a, a letter in my hand, still in my fingertips, which was typed out, and it was a letter from Woolies. Now, Woolies is, or Woolworths is a, um, a national grocery chain. It's the biggest grocery chain in Australia. It's about 150 years old. They're everywhere. Uh, I don't know how you'd equate it to the United States. but um, Yeah, Safeway, uh, Smith's. I've seen a ton of Woolies. I've been yeah. in there. Avocado, yeah. nice nice presentations, food. Yeah, big grocery yeah. store. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's a big grocery chain in Australia. So I had this letter that said, um, Mr. Andrew Roebuck, you are Formally hereby. typed out letter. Formally typed out letter, very legal. You, are, you have a three-month ban on entering Woolworths effective from this date, immediately from this date. And I don't know what the date was. It was in July or something. And, uh, and I looked at this letter for a bit, and I was so hungover and foggy and all, still drunk to some degree. And I read it, and I thought, where did I get this letter from? This is a bit of a joke. They have and the wrong some... Andrew. They must. <laughs> I was watching a football <laughs> match last night. Exactly. And then I saw some groceries on the ground. It was all ice cream and chocolate and chips and Cheetos or Cheezels, as we call them in Australia, uh, just unopened, just sitting on the ground in some plastic bags that I'd obviously got from Woolies. And so I walked up to Woolies, uh, which is about half a mile from my place, uh, 800 metres, and I walked in and asked them, oh, guys, can somebody just explain what this letter is? Is this real? And they said, oh, and they got the security guards, and, uh, and one of them said, oh, you don't remember being here last night, do you? I said, no, I don't. He said, well, I didn't think you would. He said, uh, you caused such a scene here. You were trying to buy so much uh, chocolate and ice cream and, uh, and chips, and you kept dropping things, and you smashed ice cream. You fell into the shelving. You knocked things over. We couldn't get you out of the, out of the building. We had to call the police. So they called the police, who then, then they sat me down trying to work out you know, whether they could, whether they were going to charge me with any offences or not, and the police had decided not to. But Woolworths took it upon themselves to then ban me from Woolworths for three months. And so I, I said to them, "So what happens if I turn up to Woolies to get my groceries?" And they said, "Well, you can't. If you do, now that we've given you the official letter, we can, we will report you to the police, and they'll charge you with a criminal offence, which is trespassing. So I could get a, a criminal felony, so to speak, in the US um, for going to the local grocery store." And, um, you know, and that's, you know, that, that was 25 years after I spent five days in jail. Yeah. So and and Andrew, it sounds like we got another one of those. I got away with it until I didn't. And yes. they didn't press charges. And it also sounds like they let you buy some ice cream that was probably melted on the ground with the Cheetos the next day. Right. 
<laughs> I think they just let me pay for something. I don't know. You guys, they, first they off, I got to say one thing. You guys are so friendly down here. There's no way in America they let you back to Rite Aid or to Whole Foods. You'd be gone for a life. So that's just like a, a token expression to say, you guys are so kind-hearted down here that they let you. Three months, that's a, that's a generous ban. And we're right on that. Oh, it is. But when you consider around where I live, there's nothing, nowhere else to buy your groceries except the local convenience stores and 7-Elevens, which are okay. about three times the price. You're thinking about your survival here. Okay. Exactly. It's, it's a big impact on your life when suddenly the grocery store you rely upon for your, for your food uh, is no longer available to you. Sure. For yeah. All right. So you got three-month ban from Woolies where you're like, all right, now's the time when I'm getting up at the butt crack of dawn and I'm swimming in the ocean. Or was there, was there still some more like, all right, like let's, let's do some more field research. Let's test this alcohol thing a little bit more. That, that was the sort of the beginning. I was swimming still at sunrise. Even during that period, I was swimming at sunrise. Okay. I was kind of battling the real Jekyll and Hyde situation where I was desperately trying to, to find any way to get out of how I was. At the same time, I was continuing to increase the, the, the behavior and how crazy it was. And, and it went on for, a, it was probably about six months later. Uh, it would have been, it was, well, it was the beginning of February and, and I have my own business now and it was sort of just, just puttering along. I didn't have to do much. It, I didn't have much income from it, but just enough to be able to, to survive and, and drink cheap wine. And so I figured that was good enough. I could keep going like that till death. Um, I wasn't going to be a millionaire, but at the same time I could keep drinking my cheap wine for the rest of my life and not, no one would, would care. I didn't think anybody would bother anybody. But I tried to cut my alcohol consumption down. And by this stage, I was drinking between 20 and 30 drinks a day, it just consistently. If I had less than – I'd buy two bottles of wine every day, and I'd finish those at home. But I'd also drink beer and wine out in bars and pubs. And so I'd have the two bottles of wine at home were my backup. So when I got, came home, if I woke up from a blackout or whatever, I'd have something to drink. And I'd drink those as well. And so I was drinking about 20 to 30 standard units, uh, drinks a day. And I had an important – finally, I had a meeting to go to for work on a, on a Monday. And so the, the Thursday before it, I decided I'd better get myself back into some – I looked like – I looked ri- this ridiculous, right? My eyes were puffed up and swollen. My face was swollen up and white. I looked like a, a white pumpkin. And, uh, you know, and my eyes were bloodshot beyond belief. And that's what I looked like on a st- every single day. And so I thought I can't go to the meeting looking like this. So I thought I'll – you know, I, uh, I'll cut my alcohol down for a few days. So I, I, I started cutting down. I had about 14 beers on my first day and I didn't buy any wine. The next day I had about 10 beers and this, and I was shaking uncontrollably and I'd never experienced that before. I'd always had a little bit of jitters and shakes, but not like this. This, I couldn't even put a glass of water to my lips to drink it. I couldn't drink, certainly couldn't have a cup of coffee. And that's I couldn't after do anything. going down to 14 drinks. Yes, yes. That was me. That was not cutting out altogether that was trying to reduce wow okay. and uh and i wasn't drinking like that a year earlier i wasn't drinking that many drinks one year earlier this happened really quickly it got me from nowhere i, I got to that point really fast and uh, where i was dependent upon the alcohol and that volume of alcohol to not basically have a seizure and uh, and i basically got to the monday morning and i'd been sweating all night and i, I put my yeah, suit and tell tie us about on. the meeting <laughs> well I, I didn't make it to the meeting i i got to the train station up the hill from where i live and I only had to go one stop, and I had a, a seizure oh, out the wow. front of the train station during peak hour, where there were thousands and thousands of people around. And I and I woke up in an ambulance on the way to the hospital, and then I woke up in the hospital with them cutting my um, shirt and uh, jacket off with scissors and my tie, uh, and I was covered in blood. And I, I basically had a, a seizure, 
and uh, collapsed in the street and hit my head and, uh, and burst an artery inside my head and uh, smashed my skull. And, um, and they, they basically, shave, I woke up them cutting my clothes off and then shaving my head, the back of my head. And uh, they cut into my, uh, into my head and repaired the artery. I had to have blood transfusions because I'd lost so much blood. And, uh, and I was in hospital for five days. And on the fifth day, they were warning me because they knew it was alcohol-related because I, you know, they talked to me a lot about what happened. They wanted to find out if I suffered from epilepsy or, or any other reason it might have been. And I was cleared of everything, and I, and I just said to them, look, it's the alcohol. I told them what I'd tried to do and how much I'd been drinking. It was the first time I'd really been 100% honest with a doctor and because I, I knew I had to. You get to. I got to the point where I couldn't bullshit anymore. Yeah, the gig is up at that moment. Yeah, I had to tell them the truth. And they said to me, look, you know, you know, if you go out there again, they wanted me to go, to go into a rehab, but I was adamant that I couldn't because I had too many important things to do in my life, right? That's how I felt. Are you air coding uh, that right so, there? Important things to do that are more important than yep. your life? <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. And so that's what I said uh, to the doctor. And I said, look, I, I've got, I just can't. I don't have the ability. I can't leave my life behind and just go into rehab. And so they, they said to me, look, well, we, want you, we want you to come back at a later date and do a detox, a proper detox with us under medical supervision. You have detoxed now, but if you drink again, you're going to be at a high risk of, of, of a, um, a seizure again. And we know how this will affect you. You'll be, you'll be afraid of a seizure because it's already happened. So you'll probably continue to drink. So that's what we're worried about. And I said, oh, look, I'll keep an eye on it. I'll let you know. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. And, uh, and they let me go. And uh, they let me go with all these stitches in my skull and my head and, and a shaved head. And I uh, walked out to the street. One of my best friend's wives had brought me some fresh clothes because all my clothes were cut, cut into pieces with the scissors and covered in blood. And I went, went out to the front of the hospital and hailed a taxi or a cab and went to uh, the nearest pub. Wow, and ordered that's right. And, uh, and that shows the absolute insanity of it. That, and and you know, they, they gave me a beer and then as soon as I turned around and walked off, the, the manager came after me and grabbed the beer off me because he saw the back of my head. I was only shaved in the back of my head. So if you're standing looking at me front on, you didn't know that I'd had that accident. And so then he saw the back of my head with the stitches and the, the bald head. And he said, I can't, you can't have it. You, I'm really sorry, you can't have it. What's wrong with you? What's happened to you? And I said, oh, I just got out of hospital. Get wow. And he looked at my face and I said, I'm okay. He goes, no, no, you're not. I think you should go back to hospital. He said, I can see it in your eyes. You're hey, not, hang you're on not for a sec, Andrew. So the first drink that you order after going from the hospital, after the seizure, the, the cutting the artery for five days, the first drink you order, somebody comes up to you and says, you can't have it. I don't know where you're at, where we're on, on the divine spectrum, or this could be a coincidence, but <laughs> that's powerful right there. That's, that's a spiritual experience. Uh, that the universe is watching out for you. And I'm loving your story. And I, I want to get to the point because this is a remarkable story, but your recovery is equally remarkable. So let's, yes. let's get to your sobriety date sooner. Okay. Okay. So look, look, anyway, let's put it this way. I drank for another month after that. After that moment, I drank for another month. I found a pub that would give me beer and I found bottle shops that would serve me. Most wouldn't. And I did drink for another month. And then I was threatened with being locked up in a mental asylum by the psycholo psychologists at the hospital where I went back to visit them for my, when I went to see them next. And, uh, and they saw the state I was in and they threatened. They said, look, how about you come back in three days and see us again? Don't have a drink. Right now, we've got enough evidence to lock you up against your will. And that scared me enough to get me to go to do something. So I went to an AA meeting, which I knew was just around the corner from me. I've been to AA meetings before and just sat there and not really paid attention and just walked out and not really hearing anything. And this time I sat there and I thought, I'm just going to sit here and listen to whatever they've got to say because I don't have any answers. I've got nowhere else to go. I've been to doctors. I've been to psychiatrists. I've been on medications. I've been on, you know, my story is one of constantly trying medications every few years when, I, when it got bad enough and them not working and, and looking for any answer that wasn't alcohol. 
I just didn't want it to the answer to be alcohol. But but deep down, I knew that was that was the answer. And uh, so I went to AA and I sat down and I listened and I and I went and I just kept going back every day because I really didn't have anything else to do. I had nowhere else to go. I had nothing else to do. I was basically about to everything in my life was destroyed. And I was living by myself in a little studio and happened to be by the beach, which was one, the one blessing. And I was about to lose my business. My business partner had said, look, I, I, we can't go on this week. The clients are starting to complain. Every time you turn up to a meeting, you stink of alcohol or you don't turn up. And so I was about to go down the drain with everything that was the, the, the tiny little bit I was clinging to. I walked into AA and I sat and I just went back the next day and the next day. And I just, I just kept listening to what I, to other people. I heard people who were sober 30 years and I thought, oh, they can't have been as bad as I am. And that's what I thought. And then I'd hear the stories and what they'd gone through was sometimes worse and you know, their childhoods were worse. And they're what they, and I had a great childhood that, you know, but I, I discovered that everybody was, could be very different in there. But the one thing that was in common was as soon as you had a drink, them or me, there was no way to guarantee what kind of things would unfold from that drink onwards. Let me ask you to expand on a concept for a second here. As you said, no one could have had it as bad as I did. This is a concept called terminal uniqueness, which often prevents us from even getting into the room saying, well, I'm unique. I'm from this place. I have this job. Those people just don't understand. But then you get in there and you say, wait a second, not only did they go through the same thing I did, maybe even worse. So what do you, what can you say to listeners right now that, that are out there saying the same thing? Like, it's not going to work for me because my story is completely different. I'm too far gone and it's not going to work for me because no one's gone as far as I have. Oh, it, it, there's, there's no such thing as too far gone. That's what I've learned beyond anything. You know, I was devoid of hope. What I saw with everybody in, uh, who I met is that you, you can be as unique as you want in every other aspect of your life. But alcohol, when it, when it hits your bloodstream, if it causes you to suddenly have no control over where you're going to be, who you're going to be with, who you're going to become yourself, then you've got something really in common with everybody else in AA, no matter how different you are in every other aspect. You, know, may, you may have grown up without parents. You may have grown up in, in abuse. You might have grown up extremely wealthy and privileged. And it's not, and, but but when you, as soon as you put your drink in your body, you're the same as everybody else uh, who, who has this same problem. Now, if we've all got the same problem once we have a drink, and some of these people seem to have made it out the other side and now are living wonderful lives, Maybe there's we've all got the same potential solution, and uh, it's not not I'm not saying one size fits all, but maybe there's some things in common that can help everybody who's got this same problem to to get out the other side. And, 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 and I, what that's do you what think I've those big discovered. things are that are in common? I think one thing in common is the first thing is, and I've heard it said in a few meetings, the therapeutic value of one alcoholic sharing with another alcoholic. Now, I think I said the other day at, at the podcast, you know, I look around a table of recovered people who are recovering and who have on a daily basis are out, be, uh, out doing alcohol. On a daily basis, they're beating alcohol. Uh, I look at them and I know that if I sit in a room, I can have 40 people sitting around a room in AA. And if I were to replace them with 40 doctors and specialists in alcohol, I don't think those doctors and specialists, a room full of those guys, have the same medicinal value in helping me to fix who I am and how I drink than the 40 people who are drunks who've survived it themselves. They've got the better therapeutic value to, to help me heal. And, and I've, that's what I've discovered. I've fronted up to doctors and, and medications and psychiatrists and management plans. You know, I don't think there's anything I haven't tried to try and stop me from drinking. I mean, I once became convinced that it was my access to money that caused me to drink so much that I, I could spend all my money. So I, I got an envelope 
and wrote my name and address on it. And then I used to get my credit card and key card and put it in the envelope and mail it to myself on a Friday. So the post office would take until Monday to deliver it back to my own front door. And I thought that was the answer. The problem is I knew all the publicans in town and they'd extend me credit over the bars anyway. So it ended up worse. I ended up spending more <laughs> and getting more drunk. So I've tried, I've tried to be so creative in my ways to continue drinking but not have the consequences. Andrew, and that might be one of the best ways to moderate air quotes that, I, that I've ever heard. You put your credit cards and, and resource or your money in an envelope and mail. wow, that's unbelievable. <laughs> I, I love that. I absolutely love that. And, well, it and, didn't work. <laughs> no, of course it doesn't work, right? There's all these loopholes. We justify, oh, well, this weekend's different. They don't understand. Um, yes. Jesus, that's incredible. And you, okay, you dropped a huge value bomb earlier, and there's a recurring theme over and over and over. And this is episode 259, which I think it's dropped, if not every episode, every other episode. That's the opposite of addiction is connection. And we were leaning yes. into this idea, like right around episode 20, 30, 40, 50 in the podcast, that community is what collectively pulls us out of addiction. There's no way through isolation, through just one person in a room, can we A, think ourselves out of this problem, or B, on an individual level, pull us out of this. And I love how you said you could get 20 or 30 of the best brilliant minds from Western Eastern medicine together. And they probably couldn't do anything more than just a bunch of group of dudes and guys and gals who want to collectively ditch the booze. Oh, uh, 100%. I, I don't even, that's not even a, just a, an idea of mine anymore. I, I'm convinced of it without, without question, you know, I, I just, because I've seen, I've seen it. I've lived it. I've had it. I've experienced it myself, and I've seen it in other people around me. You know, there's nothing like seeing the moment somebody's the fog clears from somebody's eyes, and the, and the, for the first time, a hint, the little flame of hope is there in their life. And I know it in mine that suddenly there's a moment where you go, "I've got a chance. I I've got a chance of this." And there's that moment is is profound because for the first time in in a, as long as I could remember, when I finally sat in the meeting and I suddenly thought. I've got a chance not of just getting sober because I didn't really know if I wanted that because I was such a mess. I didn't think I could clear up the mess that I had become and what I'd done in my past. But there was a chance that I had a future. And as soon as I had that glimmer of hope that I might have a future, I'm 40, you know, 47 now, I was 46 when I came into AA last year. And I thought, I've got a chance of, of, of rebuilding and not just rebuilding, but actually starting again. And I, you know, the, the amount of hope and, and, and faith that I have in a future now um, is extraordinary, and it's all from it's all from being with other people who've survived drink, alcohol, and and you know I, I it it is it has come from AA, and I'll be straight to the point on that. It has come from AA and working through the program, and that had to be I had to be humbled. I mean, I got I was almost a year sober, but when I had the seizure and, and that one month drinking after the seizure was the beginning of last year. It was February last year. It wasn't until February this year, I had a relapse in February this year when I was about to become one year because I hadn't done anything else but turn up to meetings and sat there and listened. And I hadn't done any work. I hadn't really connected with anybody else in AA. I didn't, have a, I didn't do all the things that you're meant to do. And when I was at my most desperate low, I would have done anything. When I was crying out, I will do anything, anything to have this removed. And it turns out I wouldn't because in the first year, I would have done anything except for what I was told to do by other alcoholics. And I would have pushed cars up a hill. But I didn't want to do the 12 steps. I would have done this, but I didn't want. I would have done anything except for the one thing I was told to do. And maybe that's just the defiance that we, are, as alcoholics, have. We, we're, we're, it's very hard to tell us what to do. 
I actually want to get your opinion on something. So I get emails all the time or people saying I would do anything. And it's, it's the precursor to that is everything, all the damage, the wreckage, the pain that alcohol has caused. And they'll say like a couple things that they've done and they'll say why they don't want to go to AA or why they can't open up because they're in this type of profession. And then they'll say, I will do anything it takes. Um, but that's not really the case. No, it's not. Because you do anything except for the one thing probably that has the highest chance of helping you, and that's and that's it, it. That's baffling. That's the baffling part of alcoholism, is that at our lowest we're willing to do anything, but as soon as the fog clears just that little bit, our memories fade of that how bad we actually felt in that moment, and then we're not quite willing to do anything because there's one thing that's offered. You know, AA is free, and it's the only treatment program probably in the world that's completely free, and everybody else you go to, to see there doesn't have any agenda to try and take something from you and uh and you know i put it to myself when i came back from that relapse okay i'm going to give myself three months to do the steps to do everything they tell me to do absolutely everything and if at the end of that three months one or whenever i complete the steps and to you know just one by one i, tr- I turned it into a one-step program not 12 steps one step i only looked at the step i was up to i didn't want to know about the step past it and i asked my sponsor what do i have to do today to to go further in this one step and then once he was, he goes, well, that's it. You've done that step. Okay, what do I have to do next to get stuck into this next step? And as soon as I did that, the fear I had about doing 12 steps and the, because uh, I was afraid of doing all the steps because it looks looks a bit weird and spiritual and strange and it was foreign concepts to me. I thought I had a medical condition, not a spiritual or an emotional condition. I thought it was all medical. And uh, as soon as I took away looking too far ahead into it and just focused on one step, doing what I was told, I thought, okay, I'm going to be humble for the first time in my life. I'm going to act, actively seek help for the first time in my life rather than wait till I'm forced to look for help because I've destroyed things again. I'm going to actually do things differently than how I've always done them. And I'm going to actually do what I'm told, admit that I know nothing. And if I get to the end of that three months, well, it's not like the bottle shops and pubs are closing down in a hurry. They're going to be still waiting there for me. And if I want to, I can go back to them. But I'm going to do this and then I'm going to see what happens. And miraculously or not, probably not a miracle because it seems to have worked for everybody who's done it thoroughly, it worked. And at those moments, the lessons I've learned along the way, the difference in connection to another human being once you start to put this program into your life is enormous. There's, there's valuable connections with other human beings. You realize that you've become an important part of other people's lives as well, even without talking to them, just by sitting and listening. You can become an important part in somebody else's life that might even help save their life. And once you realize that you are significant, you are important, your, your self-esteem, you know, you, you gain self-esteem by doing esteemable things. Well, going to AA, taking the actions that I was told to do without questioning them, uh, ha- allowed me to become a, a more esteemable person by my actions. And, and it's been a, that reward is enormous when you can walk down the street and you feel pride when you walk down the street you feel pride not in anything you've achieved but pride in the fact that you have slowly becoming the person that you thought you might be able to be when you're a child you know so you 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 realize that you have it in you to be the best version of of a human that that you saw as an example when you're a child and you realize it was in you the whole time and that version that you know you aren't your drinking you aren't your behavior those things can be left behind and then you can become come out the other side of a, a new person, a raw person who does have the ability to get back to the person you're meant to be. And you can't do that by thinking your way there. You've got to act your way there. 
and you know you've got to act your way there with the suggestions of others who've done it yeah and listeners i have not met every interviewee on the podcast in person but I've had the pleasure to meet Andrew in person. We've, uh, we, we met at an AA meeting, and then he came to the Recovery Elevator Meetup. And then we went to a concert, a Paul Kelly concert, which to me reminded me of like the Bob Dylan Down Under incredible concert in downtown Sydney. Um, probably 10,000, 15,000 people there. And Andrew was walking the walk. Everything he's saying right now, I'm nodding. His, his eyes are full of light. He is full of energy. And you've just got this fantastic aura about you, Andrew. And I saw you and I'm like, I got to get this guy on the podcast because he's doing it. Everything that you say, you're not academically or, or philosophically just rattling off in the interview. You're doing all of it. So I just want to say thank you for having the courage to come up um, and share your story with the podcast and, and do what you're doing. Um, and we have, we have reached the rapid fire around Andrew. If you could answer these questions in 30 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Yes, I am. Yeah. All right. What's the number one a light bulb moment you've had on this journey? Probably the first time I was told you can have alcohol or, or you can have everything else. That was the moment I realized it was my choice now. Those two parts, alcohol still and go down the same life as normal or everything else. And that was that, that, that started, that truly started me on this journey hearing that. And what is a memorable moment a life without alcohol has given you? Oh, there's so many now. For starters, I remember most of them, um, whereas I didn't remember much before. <laughs> so there's so many. Uh, meeting my girlfriend was, it was it's probably a memorable memorable moment because it was just somebody I met in the street and said hello to, then ran into her a few days later at a bus stop, and then I ran into her at Woolies, you know, a couple of years after my uh, band had passed, doing grocery shopping, and uh, and she said to me, uh, "You again? Are you stalking me?" And I said, "No, but would you like to go out for a coffee?" And I met a wonderful young lady randomly. Just from being friendly and being being just being myself, vastly different. That, that's that's probably the greatest miracle I've seen in how things work when you're healthy. Yeah, and I met Andrew's girlfriend in person at the Paul Kelly concert. She's an absolute sweetheart. And next question, Andrew, what's your favorite alcohol-free drink? Oh, look, this is a strange one. Um, sparkling water. <laughs> it sounds so boring, but I, I was actually thinking about it the other day. When I first got sober, I used to have to drink Diet Coke. Or a, a soda lime bit, lemon squash, or you know, club soda. I had to drink all these soft drinks to feel like I was actually with other people and I was still doing things. And and I don't know when it happened, but I stopped drinking those things and just stuck to sparkling water after a while. When I go at home, I just drink tap water, but I drink sparkling water, and I, and I just realised I've lost interest in needing. I don't need to add something different flavour-wise to, to me to to feel like I'm actually participating in life or participating in the environment I'm in. Doesn't quite go that way with food. I still like lots of things, <laughs> but, <laughs> but for drinks, for drinks, I, yeah, I don't really chase anything anymore. There's nothing I really need. Yeah, and what's on your bucket list in an alcohol-free life? A lot of people will say travel. I traveled a lot. I, I don't. There's nothing. I, I always want. You know, one. I've got one travel journey that I always dreamed of doing, which was the Trans-Siberian Railway from Beijing to St. Petersburg. It's uh, around twelve thousand kilometers. You can do it over about five weeks. Go through Mongolia, Siberia some of the most isolated places on earth. It's still one travel journey I'd like to do. I, I, I'm, I'm enjoying the randomness of how life goes and the fact that I'm present now that I'm just going with the flow. I go with the flow. You know, it's on a daily, but on Saturday morning when I woke up, my original plans for Saturday were just to go to the beach, go and get some groceries and, and have a, and do some washing, do a, a fairly domestic day. Instead, I end up at having breakfast down at the pavilion, having and doing the podcast with you, and then at a, a massive concert in the park in the city. 
I'm just enjoying going with a flow that sobriety has allowed me to participate in. Yeah, that was um, a super things, fun day. Oh, it was amazing. And that came from nowhere. From nowhere. Yeah, from yeah. nowhere. I was able to be offered that because I was there. And last question, what parting piece of guidance can you give the listeners? The biggest one for me is seek out people who've already survived and, and people who've not just survived but seem happy that they have and, and, uh, and, and listen to what they have to say and for, if you can, for a short period, set aside your, your prejudices, your ideas, your any pre, and open your mind and be willing to try something different and even if you don't really agree with it or understand it to start with and see where it takes you. If you can just for a, a period, uh, just just put aside whatever you think you know and think for a moment that maybe you don't know anything and just go from there and see where it takes you. Because if you can if you can do that, you might have a real shot of not just beating the alcohol but uh, giving yourself a life again. Because I know I know I I've been saved, but I know the, the the person that's been saved is not the person who used to drink. No, I'm I've, I've now got a life that was worth saving, whereas the life that I led before wasn't. So this has given me the new life. It's, uh, it's, it's everything. And Andrew, before yeah. we depart, give listeners your favorite, you might have a drinking problem if line. Uh, if after 27 years, uh, 27 years after you almost ran over a police officer at, uh, on the side of the road, just you're getting banned from your local supermarket. Oh, I love it. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad we were able to schedule this. Uh, yeah, loved it. Nice job. Thanks, Paul. Thanks a lot. All the best, everyone. As Lily Tomlin would say, for fast-acting relief, slow down. I've made it a goal of mine to slow down, and this will apply to how I deliver the messages in this podcast. I also went back and heard some of the Recovery Elevator podcast episodes in the 90s and the 100s, and I can hear how strapped for time I was, and it seemed like I was rushing or even speeding through it. I also got a lesson on slowing down when I went to check in for my flight to Australia from Oaxaca two weeks ago. Apparently, when you get a visa to Australia, you have to have your passport numbers entered identically to the visa, as in all the digits have to match. Mine didn't. It was off by one digit. So I missed my flight that day, but I broke my record for tacos that day in Oaxaca. I'm kidding, but I think I did. I know I had at least 12. I remember the day when I purchased the visa to Australia, how fast I was moving that day and how much I told myself I had to do. It didn't feel good then, and it didn't feel good when I took the cab back to my Airbnb after missing my flight. It didn't feel good paying for an Airbnb in Australia that I didn't get to use for the night, and it didn't feel good buying another visa to Australia. So I'm working on slowing down. Recovery Elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. I love you guys. 